Yo, what's up, everybody? This is Jay or Hamantash, and you know who it is by now. I'm the author of You Know It's True, my fourth and final collection, and a bunch of other ones. But we got a lot of stuff to cover, so you don't have to go through all that. Who am I joined with? Uh, it's me, Derek Sotak. I wrote The Field Guide to Nachos, Nachos Lead You, and Recipes with the Nachonomicon, all available at Nachonomics.com, as well as the William Hibachin role-playing game, Grace Caesar Dream of My Death, also available at Nachonomics.com. I guess it's never enough to talk about. Derek's always got to talk about his shit, huh? Well, I mean, I just spoke extra quick, so I used about the same amount of time looking at these uh, waves on this recording. Well, I mean, you just scramble that. People could be like, I want to read his stuff, but I can't find it. Nacho what? Nacho Hodgson what? Good thing they have 230-something mother episodes to watch. Yeah, oh, shit, are we on 230-something episodes? If they oh, haven't man. bought your book by now, they certainly ain't going to buy it because of the second of a series of three episodes about short stories. That's true. Sure. This is episode 230, as a matter of fact. God damn, Derek. Do you feel <laughs> prideful or sad? I feel kind of uh, prideful. I mean, sometimes I feel prideful, and sometimes I feel sad. I mean, so. I feel kind of prideful, though. I always just think, like, what, what of it? When when will the when will we get that gold at the end of this rainbow, Derek? Technically, every year, should something happen to me, the website will not be paid for, and all these episodes will disappear forever. So it just shows that you know we're all just sands and hourglass. Derek, finite, let's uh, let's talk. I mean, this is my legacy right here. Let's talk <laughs> off air. I'll send you two hundred fifty. We we should release a two hundred fifty episode like CD to sell. With every episode on it. And then they'd be like, well, why don't I just listen to it for free right now? Well, we'll, we'll put in some extra stuff or something. I don't know. Um, so 20 more weeks. Look out for that, people. I mean, with 250 episodes of us, you'll never be lonely. True. Or will you be truly, truly lonely? I mean, I've never felt lonelier than when I'm next to somebody sometimes. Um, is that a song lyric? No, that's just a fact. A sad, <laughs> sad fact. <laughs> Uh, you always hope it's a song lyric, and when it turns out to be a fact, that's even yeah. sadder. So, uh, we are in the second section of The Dark Descent, the landmark anthology of horror fiction. It came out, I think, off the top of my head in the 80s. Um, and 86, are, I want to say. And we are in the psychological horror section, or it's called The Medusa and the Shield, where the primary horror is the psychology of the characters. Although... And this, I mean, again, it's a little bit ambiguous because in the stories that we're talking about, why is this not a color of evil story when it's a ghostly intrusion? Because uh-huh. it's a psychology, the ghost relies upon the psychology of the main character. Who the fuck? Yeah, is? there's a there's a monster, but we're we're in the character's mind, I suppose. So my story is called "How Love Came to Professor Gildia." which was written in 1900, which is pretty remarkable. Wow. Since like, yeah, the yeah. banter and the observations among the two main characters still feels pretty fresh. And the reason I kind of like this story is in part is because I really do like stories where like no character is a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Like they're both kind of like legitimately trying to sit, figure out a strange problem that has arisen. And I like the banter and camaraderie between the two of them. And also the... Uh, antagonist ghost or whatever it is is, is a fairly interesting uh, invention i must say uh, this is also for for listeners wishing was there a fifth jr hamatashi collection there's not but this story is perhaps the most jr hamatashi story i have read they just need to throw in a couple poop scenes and it'd be good to go why do you say it's the most jr hamatashi story uh, a lot of people talking for a long period of time before that the action kicks in you really get to know the characters. You live with them for a while. I mean, what you're really trying to say is a lot of a lot of talking, not a lot of action. I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's true. And then there's a bird in it. I do like birds. Oh, there you go. But anyway, this was written by Robert Hitchens, who lived from 1864 to 1950. 
uh, at the like in the collection they have like little blurbs about the each story um they say this story kind of stands beside the beckoning fair one and turn of the screw as a landmark of the novella form a deconstruction of victorian christian morality under the guise of a mor- moral tale though i don't really agree with i don't see how this is a deconstruction of victorian christian morality i don't really buy that bullshit yeah or uh, a moral tale really yeah either? i mean i guess the moral is open your heart to the world don't Don't look at ghosts outside maybe uh the blurb goes on i thought the strain the the blurb of the story was kind of odd because it kind of goes on and on about the beckoning fair one and its influence was just weird because it's like hey this is a hitchens blurb here it kind of reminded me like did you read that story about that kid in berkeley who was like randomly shot and killed on the street but it was at the same time as like all the george floyd stuff so like mm-hmm. his obi- his school wrote an obituary, but it was all about like George Floyd. And it was like, damn, dude got fucking written out of his own obituary. <laughs> um, so timing. I think this is Hitchens' most anthologized story. Uh, it seems he wrote in a lot of genres, but mainly romance. I mean, I saw a novel called A Spirit in Prison, and I thought, is that about a chained ghost? But it's like, <laughs> nope, a romance. And then I saw another one called The Call of the Blood. It's like, ooh, ooh vampirism? No, unrequited yeah. love. So would you, I have not read Beckoning Fair One yet, but would you say this is similar to that? Um, Beck, I mean, I have to say Beckoning Fair One's better. I okay. I was very impressed by the Beckoning Fair One. Uh, it felt right. quite modern. And this is, I mean, similar in the sense that they both involve like a ghostly intrusion, but they're they're mm-hmm. fa- they're pretty different in uh, execution. And then Turn of the Screw, which I've, I've actually uh, never read. everyone seems to love Turn of the Screw. I'm not a huge fan of it. Like I, I get what they're going for, but it's not like it doesn't touch me. Hmm, okay, well, this one touched you, right, in all the right places? It did. It touched that cold, dusty Derek Hart. It did. It brushed off some of that dust and realized there was nothing underneath. So this is a long, a a relatively long story, so buckle in and brace in. Uh, But after you're done, you won't need to read it. Uh, So the story, it's... (laughs) Is that the goal of these episodes? You don't need to read the stories? I mean, isn't it? Why else do we go in such fucking (laughs) autistic detail about them? I mean, admittedly, we talk probably longer about some of these than it would take to read them well not this one because this one's a fairly long story no 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 mine will be much shorter so. yeah uh so the story opens up with dull people often wondered how it came about that father murchison and professor frederick gildia were intimate friends i mean we're opening with insults here so basically they are opposites uh father murchison is loving and tender and gildia has a hard face like a hatchet an aggressive black goatee, and he fired off words with a sharp and clipping utterance. So he's basically like your typical Reddit actually guy. Mm-hmm. Except this guy is actually a successful scientist and researcher. He does not love or care for the world, but his scientific efforts are still of great benefit. Uh, the two met at a lecture Gildia was giving, and they became friends and had charming conversations about whether an oval or a square table is better for parties. What's the answer, Derek? uh oval for sure obviously so it's like the circle of light it's like the it flows into each other yeah no hard edges so uh they're having some conversation about alcohol and uh you know gildia makes a mention how like oh the priest you kind of underplay how much alcohol plays in relationships that's a serious omission and the priest says your omission of any desire for close human sympathy is a more serious omission and it's like damn you bring in the heat there so Gildia's theory is like, hey, it doesn't matter if I care for humanity or not. My research is still as good. 
uh, one can do harm with great affection and great good without it. And his example is his butler. He said the same butler for years, a perfect servant, uh, but Gildia doesn't know or care anything about him. And there's no way the butler could possibly be, be a better butler. The priest says, well, you know, if you needed him in a crisis, though, he wouldn't be there for you. I guess one criticism of the story might be like they talk of affection and how the like and all the stuff about the butler might be a bit contrived given then what happens. Mm-hmm. Although it's actually mentioned in passing by the priest. He's like, oh, yeah, we talked about that issue of affection a couple years ago. And then X, Y, Z thing happens. <laughs> Uh, they go upstairs. He just, he's, you know, he's showing the priest his digs. And uh, Gildia has a parrot. Uh, not a pet. He, quote, possesses a parrot because he just never got rid of it after he was studying it for some research. Gildia talks again about how, you know, to be under the watchful eye of affection would be terrible. And the priest likes him but pities him because Gildia wants for so little and seems so disconnected from emotion. Chapter 2. A year and a half passes, the priest comes over to Gildia's house and finds him looking quite fatigued with the birdcage covered up under a curtain. Gildia asks the priest if he's, if he's attractive, you know, or whether a human can find him irresistible, which, I mean, that could take the story in so many different directions. <laughs> the priest is thinking about it, and it's actually mention of the priest's full cherubic lips and blue eyes, so it sounds like the priest is the true hottie. Mm-hmm. The priest hems and haws, and he's like, well, maybe an intellectual lady would like you. And then when pressed, he's like, yeah, there's nothing too adoring about you, which I kind of like, you know? <laughs> Gildia, yeah, they're, they're good friends. Yeah, Gildia's like, I agree, I agree. But let me just tell you the facts. Uh, and it's kind of cool throughout the story. Gildia isn't really, like, scared about this. He's just, like, more curious. So one day, outside his park, I'm sorry, so outside his house, there's a little park. And he saw somebody sitting there with his back toward him, some blackish object on the bench rising into view. Gildia was intrigued by it for some reason, and he went out to investigate, but there was nothing there. Uh, He went back home, and he realized he accidentally left the front door open, but he was only gone for like three minutes. Yes, the priest. uh, You would agree, I'm not imaginative as a person. And the priest is like, no, you're not. And Gildia says, that's it. I came back, and I swear there was something in the house with me, and he's still here. I'm sure of it. I consulted a doctor who confirmed I'm sound of body and mind. Gildia seems to be aware of some mental sensation. He's conscious of a different presence in the house. Uh, You know, the butler was coldly placid and inexpressive as ever, and he didn't seem disturbed. So it seems like only Gildia detects this presence. He somehow detects this presence. He somehow feels this presence as fond of him, which makes him intensely dislike whatever this is. Uh, and he's aware of the presence in this very room. Yeah, it's like, you know, when, when someone tries too hard to be friendly with you, and you're like, mm, you're trying too hard, I'm not interested. That's what this ghost guy's doing. I mean, I wish I had that problem. <laughs> I'm always the ghost, never mm, the... Never the haunty. Never the ghost. Always the haunter, never the haunty. Exactly. So the priest says, you need a prescription of a complete week away from London. Uh, which would be a pretty sweet prescription if you could still get it. Like, go to the doctor and be like, I prescribe <laughs> weeks off work. Uh, he's like, all right, I'm going to Westgate, which I presume is some suburb of London. He's like, I'm going there for a week just to see if this will work. But uh, he mentions that while he leaves, the parrot will be keeping the house in his absence. Mm, ominous, huh? It's part three. The priest stops by Gildia's place a week later after visiting a sick person, and Gildia asks, uh, still wanting to see if I'm sick? Eh? You see, I like their repartee. You know, Gildia kind of knows he sounded like a madman, but he's convinced that there's some 
some funky shit going on. Yeah. Gildia's like, I feel fine, by the way, but that thing, it's still here. The priest says, you know, you do seem fine, but what's more likely? That your story is true or that you're being hysterical. Which, I mean, can't argue with that, right? Yeah, that's, you think uh, horses, not zebras when you hear hooves. They what? If you not heard the saying, if you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras. What if you're in Africa? Well, I mean, so you are you are to think of the most logical, realistic thing to your circumstances based on where you are. So if you were in Zebra Town, think zebras, not horses. But if you're in Horseville, think horses, not zebras. I mean, in New York, I would just think, oh, someone's galloping around their house for some sexual fetish. Uh-huh. Oh, and undoubtedly. I, there'd be someone strapping on some hooves. And, and I'm, privy, I'm privy to it all. Gildia says, no, there's something here. Uh, I may have you exercise this spirit since you're a priest, but first I'm going to convince you with proof. Uh, he says, I know something is here. You know, just as when you come into a dark room, you could tell something is there. I know something's here. He says, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't believe me either, but give me a day or two and I'll prove it. And if I can't prove it, then you can take me to any doctor you want. Which I mean, if someone said that to me, I'd say like, I don't believe you, but I'm excited for this proof in the next day or two. Yeah, you're like, I want, I want to hear about this bet. This, I'm, I'm getting ready for this. The priest says, well, your manner is convincing, even if I doubt it. And Gildia says, I'll convince you by more than my manner. And I believe the proof has been accumulating in my absence. He says, standing near the parrot. Part four. So a couple of days pass and Gildia is like uh, still seriously worried. He's not afraid of some conventional white-robed cloud-like figure, but he still knows something is there, and now he says he has the proof. The proof is in the parrot, as the old saying goes, uh, as they have great imitative abilities. Uh, he says, why, I know of a woman with palsy who was given a parrot by her son, and the parrot used to replicate her palsied head movements exactly. So, I mean, warning. Don't get people with debilitating physical ailments a parrot, because that's pretty fucked up. Mm-hmm. I like their banter a lot. He's like, I'll prove it with the parrot, but we won't have coffee just so you won't accuse me of being too zapped upon caffeine and not in my right head. Uh, they hide themselves out of the parrot's view and watch it. The parrot does a ton of normal parrot bullshit, and the priest is thinking like, what the fuck am I doing? Why am I encouraging a strange dementia in my friend? I mean, come on. Uh, hiding behind a curtain watching a parrot. That's one thing to watch a parrot, but to hide behind a curtain, I mean, it's pretty mm-hmm. fucked up. But then the parrot waddles to the bars and thrusts its head between them and stood in the exact way it always does when its head was being scratched. And then it climbs back up, watches something with interest, and then bows its odd head oddly in a way that combines extreme sentimenta- sentimentality with a weak determination, which is the most persistent kind, a common attribute of the idiot. The priest thinks of the poor souls who strangely and unreasonably attach themselves with persistence to those who love them the least. An amorous idiot. Uh, The bird starts imitating a voice, which could either be a man, a woman, or a child, but was full of sickly suggestion, a loathsome sound of someone unendurably, abdominably simple and stupid, a cooing emphasis that was unutterably mawkish and offensive. I mean, I guess the title, How Love Came to Professor Gildia, is better than The Idiot Ghost. Uh, This exasperates Gildia, because he's like, I could fight something with a brain, but something this stupid and persistent, what am I supposed to do? He calls in the butler, who confesses, you know, he hasn't heard this bird making these noises while Gildia was away, uh, that the bird hadn't left the house and no one had visited. And since a parrot supposedly never speaks in a voice that's not heard, where else could it have heard that voice? 
Where else? The priest, I mean, I would still be like, well, there's probably some other reason, right? Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, it's a bird. Birds do weird things all the time. They're just little dinosaurs. You can't explain what they're doing. I know, it's like the bird's eating its poop, too, right? Learn that from somebody? Yeah. You wish. Part 5. Uh, it's interesting. It's actually one thing that's really interesting. Like, uh, it's mentioned that the priest was so skeptical, in part because he was devoutly religious. It's like, they regulate their lives by messages from the Bible. They are seldom inclined to accept any notion of supernatural intrusion into the affair of daily life. They cannot accept the idea of a supernatural intrusion, which is very interesting because normally in these kind of stories, it's like, oh, the deeply religious guy is more likely to believe in like fucking airy fairy spirits or whatever the fuck. Yeah. He calls the next day and Gildia looks worse than ever. And he reveals that his butler has quit. He called upon the butler to be a friend and was declined. Basically asking the butler to stay the night in his room because the ghosts start getting pushy and too lovey-dovey. Like, literally rubbing up against them, you know, bumping and grinding. And the butler, like, who couldn't see any of this shit, was like, eh, it's not my job to stay with you. <laughs> or, you know. Gildia cannot stand hearing that mawkish voice of the ghost and snapped at the butler who quit. He'd also gotten rid of that parrot since he had no more need of it. Uh... I kind of like that he admits that he was actually doing that whole parrot experiment because he wanted to eliminate any doubts he had. But now that he doesn't have any more doubts, he doesn't need that parrot, which is pretty fucked up. I mean, he was going to adopt a parrot that has the mawkish voice of an idiot. Yeah, the parrot's also probably going to live for another 70 years. Yeah, parrot's fucked. Yeah. The priest says, you know, well, the ghost didn't bother you while you're on vacation. You have a lecture coming up in Paris. Why don't you just go there now? He tells him to seek distractions and also seek help. You know, words delivered with the gentle, earnest gravity which touched Gildia's stony heart. Chapter 6. So the priest is reading the paper, and normally when there's some incident of some notable person being ill, there normally isn't like a long, drawn-out description of it. But in this story, well, we learned... This was England in the 1900s. Yeah, we learned that were different then. Gildia was at a lecture, he looked pale and nervous and seemed apprehensive, and then acted as if he was being pursued, struck out his hands, and fainted. The priest visits Gildia as soon as he can, and Gildia looks awful. Uh, he says the ghost followed him to Paris and now never leaves him. It's always fawning upon me, touching me, rubbing against me. The priest suggests, maybe this is some kind of punishment, as you hated affection. Uh, Gildia cannot stand this brainless worship by an idiot. He just stares with the passion of some blind man deluded in the belief that by his furious and continued effort, he will attain sight. If I was guilty, I'd be like, yeah, telling me it's some kind of punishment is not fucking helping me, right? Uh, the priest says, hey, maybe try and love it. It'll get what it wants, and then maybe it'll leave. I mean, at this point, you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel for ideas, right? Uh-huh. That worked for, uh, uh, who was the lady who was in Naked Gun 33 and a third and had uh, the reality Anna show? Anna Nicole Smith? Anna Nicole Smith, yes. Wait, I thought you just had a penis at the end. Oh, I don't know. No, I mean, in real life, her, uh, uh, she had incidents of ghost loving, I believe. Did she? I thought she just smothered an old man with her breasts and pocketed his money. I mean, why not both? It's true. Uh, that's what he said. <laughs> oh. Uh, then suddenly, Gildia is convinced the creature wants to leave, which is uh, quite convenient. I'm not sure how he knows that. But he's like, open all the doors, quickly. And the priest obeys and sees something upon the bench, huddled together very strangely. I mean, you think the last fucking thing you'd ever want to do is go over there, given what you heard your friends say. Yeah. But he's heading over there, and some policeman stops him for no reason other than he looks sketchy, and he's like, what What are you doing here? He gives the cop a bribe, as you do, and then he sees there's nothing on the bench. 
He returns to Giltia's house and finds him in the armchair, a shocking expression of terror on his convulsed face, dead. The doctor so- shows up, said it was failure of the heart. He says the failure of the heart could have been prevented. The professor was too absorbed in his work and should have lived very differently, to which the priest says, yes, yes, sadly. I mean, first, doctor, who the fuck are you to say that the professor is too absorbed in his work, right? Yeah. And second, give him, give him slack here. it's good he said failure of the heart, which sounds more poetic than like cardiac arrest. <laughs> if he'd been like, he died of cardiac arrest. And the priest says, yes, yes. Sadly. Much less romantic. Certainly. Much less romantic. So that's the story. I mean, uh, that's pretty unique, right? I mean, how many in nineteen hundred? How often have you heard of a ghost who's like, um, I guess, benign, not benign, but he doesn't seem to intend any harm. Yeah, like, is it even a ghost, or is it like a? It's possible. I mean, this, it's nothing. Yeah, like it. It also sounds like the uh, shit. What is that? The Horla is kind yeah. of the same type of thing. Yeah, I mean. That's fair. Although I think there's like, more proof of the Horla's like the Horla like drinks water and does actual things. Yeah. Now, I guess the only proof we have here is the parrot. Yeah. I mean who can't trust if you can't trust the parrot, who what can you trust? The most the most trustworthy bird in the animal kingdom, as they say. It's quite a unique story, and I also really like the two main characters. Yeah, it's good to have uh you have your religious guy, you got your science guy, they're kind of at odds working together. I like a story where they concoct some weird scientific experiment in this case with the bird trying to figure out what's going on it's got it's got a lot of good elements put together in it. yeah i always like a story about an investigation yeah 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 so i would rec- i would i would recommend this one i liked it a bit too bad All 30 does, something pages doesn't seem like the author really wrote much more in the horror genre though mm-hmm. who's that guy who wrote uh repair reputations oh robert w chambers yeah who was like, oh, the money's in shitty romances. I'm never going to write a horror up. story again. I mean, isn't that exactly the same thing today? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to yeah, a lesser extent. But, yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, you're going to get your... We've talked about this over the course of the show. Our 230 episodes now. Of You have your very tight horror community that you can, like, sponge that money off of. Yeah, but they're all broke bums. You need those, you need those rich, lonely housewives crashing, yeah. you know, cashing those big uh, romance checks. Yeah, fucking Bruce Campbell's in a Lifetime movie now, so is, anything is he, goes these days. Is he playing a big-chinned sexy pirate? Uh, he's probably, like, the annoying boss that the romantic lead works for. That's fair. So, what's your story, Derek? Uh, my story is Roaches by J.R. Insert's bibliography here. Do you know who the author is? Do you remember? Uh, I mean, I could open this book and find out, but I did it's not. Real, down it's some real fucking top top ranked notes right there. It's, I mean, you're the guy who does the the background information. Of this I'm the one who does all the editing. I mean, it's normally fair to say that you should know who the author. But his name is Thomas uh, Dish. Oh yeah, I did know that because I was like, ah, oh, I never heard of this guy. I never read anything by him. I mean, I haven't I either. Not. But so he was a science fiction writer, <laughs> born in 1940 and died in 2008. He was a contributor to what they called the new wave of science fiction that came out in the 60s and 70s. I always wanted to read his book, Camp Concentration, just for the title. Yeah, it's pretty mm. ballsy, right? What? Do you know what it's about? Camp Concentration. It's like, an in, a, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I get what it's referring to, but is that what it's actually Concentration about? camp, Derek. It's true. And it really happened, Derek. You got to accept it. <laughs> uh, and he also wrote Stuff Our Dreams Are Made Of, which is a nonfiction about the intersection of science fiction and the real world. Uh, he tries to argue that science fiction should be America's national literature since we are a nation of liars and bullshitters. It's kind of fun. 
His novel, The Genocides, kind of sounds like a more cynical Day of the Triffids. Uh, and also, he sadly killed himself in 2008, not soon after the death of his partner, and also after he struggled for what seems to be financial woes. Mm-hmm. So that casts the real pall on your story here, Derek. Yeah. Uh, Camp Concentration is a book set during a war projected from the Vietnam War in which the United States is apparently criminally involved. It is noted at one point the U.S. is waging germ warfare in the so-called neutral countries. Mm, not that The president exciting. of the United States during this fictional war is Robert McNamara. Mm, not so exciting. take that for for what it's worth all right pass pass uh but what you should pass is the story roaches miss marcia kenwell had a perfect horror of cockroaches which is you know bad news for a 25 year old uh, in manhattan who was only making 62.50 a week for an apartment because did you ever live on manhattan or just the outlying boroughs no i lived in hell's kitchen but she oh, lives well. in Lower Thompson Street, which is Greenwich Village, and the rents for those places are like four grand a pop now. So, I mean, mm-hmm. what the fuck is she complaining about? Yeah, I mean, whatever year this was, 50-something probably? 2008. <laughs> no. Uh, no, I think it was like the 60s or 70s. Okay. Still, though, I mean, it's pretty remarkable how prices have dramatically increased or just changed. Like, you can't live anywhere off 62.50 a week. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, what is that for inflation, too? I mean, you couldn't even leave in Cleveland for that. Oh. Uh, so Marcia left Minnesota at 19 with, you know, a high school diploma and quote-unquote pluck to conquer New York City against her aunt's advice. And, you know, uh, this is a story we've heard many times before. She soon realizes that, you know, she was pretty much in the same situation as the lead in Whimpering of Whipped Dogs. Uh, less horrific violence going on around her, but, you know... First, first, terrible stuff of roaches and whatnot. More, more realistic, let's say. At least for this part. Later on, it goes off the rails, but we'll get there. Uh, a month in, she sees her first roach, and she's initially fascinated by it, which is kind of the you see something hor- so horrific, you're like interested in it, and then you are just disturbed at that point. Yeah, just, I think like, the story is a little bit about like how repulsion leads to obsession and love. Yeah, because we, we get that with the... I mean, I guess we don't get to the love part with the uh, the next-door neighbors. But. Although, I mean, I, I'm i always terrified of getting killed on the subway, but I'm not in love with my stabber. Uh-huh. So well, know. we might have just gotten beaten to death in the subway last time, so that makes it better. I would certainly admire his brute strength. Uh-huh. The pluck, say, certainly. I would say, ooh, do you work out as he bashes my face into mush? <laughs> Uh, so she tries to keep her place as clean as possible because she does not like these roaches, as we know, and thinks that, you know, if everyone in New York City kept the place as clean as hers, the roaches wouldn't exist. But we all know what the real problem is here. Your your, na- your neighbors being stereotypical Jews? Oh, uh, I was going to say, uh, the dirty uh, immigrants next door. Yeah. I mean, the, it's basically the same thing that they, they had here. Yeah, the Shapalovs. Uh, so as clean as she keeps her place, she has no control over the filthy immigrants next door. You know, they've got filth, they got disease, uh, a bit of racism thrown in here, for sure. Fair enough. I mean, they don't seem to work. Mm-hmm. They got, the, I mean, all, this is all the Well, he lives on a her. military pension, maybe, so she, she maybe. doesn't really know anything about them. She thinks they may be related in some way to the landlord, which is why they say there, and like one, ha- one guy, it's two old men and one old lady. They're missing a bunch of teeth. It's just all the worst stereotypes of your immigrants. One of them has one eye. I don't know if that's the stereotype of an immigrant. They, they, all, they all got one eye. Yeah, that's, that's the most common thing. But one was a war hero, and then they just listened to, like, 
whatever Eastern European music that they came from, and she's not, you know, pleased at all. Bless Although, in, their, their in fairness, way. they have fucking roaches in their apartment. Yeah. I'm kind of on her side. They don't work, and they got roaches. Get well, I mean, out. this is the thing, too. Like, I wondered how much of this... If, if this story was written today, it would be... She would be a Karen, basically. Pissed off at these people. But then later on in this story, they describe, oh, yeah, they're actually living in filth and squalor. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like she has a legitimate grievance. Yeah. Because they also, is- they share... I don't know exactly how it works, but, like, their apartments are connected to each other. Like, through, yeah, so through they- the sink. Yeah, their apartments are, or the the uh, Shepalov's apartments were basically like a storage area that got converted, apparently. So they, she has to fill it up a bunch of, I guess, there's holes in the walls or where the pipes go through into the next room. She has to fill them with cotton and stuff to prevent uh, the roaches and filth from their side leaking over to hers. So one day she sees a roach and she's like, scram, roach, beat it, yeah, yeah, filthy roach. And it does. And instead of a normal person thinking, oh yeah, I just yelled at a roach and it ran away. She's like, oh, did this roach run away because I told it to? So she's in the roach. She's like, stop! And it does. And she's like, wiggle your antenna, and it does. So she determines she has this magical power over roaches, and then really does nothing with this. Like, it explicitly says in the story, she's like, oh yeah, she had this power, but she didn't think about it much. Well, I mean, what you could you only do so much with it, right? Oh, well, Unless you're you? seeking revenge. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess there's not a whole lot of useful things. I mean, you could probably send... If you're clever, you could send a roach to, like, rob a bank, probably, steal yeah, some money. Yeah, I mean, if you want to, like, get something on a high-up shelf, you could have all the roaches accumulate below you and use them as a stepping stone. Yeah, I mean, this is basically a supervillain origin story. Yeah, basically. She should be the roach master or something like that later I mean, on. her thinking is, after expending so much time and attention on them, it seemed only natural that she should exercise a certain power over them. Mm-hmm. So the lesson, of course, everyone, is unhealthy obsessions will pay off. Yeah. <laughs> if you obsess about something for long enough, you'll be able to control it. Terrible advice. Terrible advice. Uh, so, you know, she's got this power, and, you know, one night the Shepelovs are making just too much noise, and she's like, hey, Roaches, eh, go over there and jump in their beds and whatnot. So they do. And, you know, the Shepelovs are not particularly pleased about this. The next day she walks outside and sees the, the female, or the woman, as she's referred to, you know, trying to scrub up some of the mess of her place, and the lady's like, oh, the boogs, the boogs! I don't know what this uh, is. I kind of like how the only word she mispronounces is the boogs. Yeah, I guess whatever place she comes from, that's how they they say bugs. Why not? And while the the woman is talking to uh, Marcia, a roach crawls out of her hair and across her face, and Marcia's, of course, disgusted by this. And she's like, oh, yeah, exactly. You don't want to watch some bug girl across somebody while they're having a chit-chat with you. That's gross. But Marcia recommends Black Flag, and somewhere Henry Rollins nods an appreciation. Somewhere Henry Rollins gets twenty five cents in his uh, royalty check, but then also yep. says, "I don't need, I don't need the man's money." <laughs> oh, quite true. I, I do need more, more tattoos, though. So I need, they're not gonna pay for themselves. I'm just waiting for Tank Girl too. Oh, oh well, so is Malcolm McDowell and uh, LL Cool J. See no, that? No, Ice T. You fucking oh, racist. Shit, I'm gonna. <laughs> All that. Now you're keeping that, Derek. You're keeping that in. Lori Petty. Oh, I mean, she's, uh, she's let's wait- more people. In- I mean, she's just waiting for a lot of things. Yeah, that's true. I kind of like yeah, Lori only what's Petty. uh the the other the main lead from Mulholland Drive, Naomi Watts. She's the only one that like uh, made yeah, good. Yeah, she off wasn't of that, that wasn't she? Yeah, she was Jet Girl. Yeah. Why do I know so much about Tank Girl? This is terrible news. Did you uh, a little bit of a tangent? Did you ever read the book about the? 
the people who went up to the International Space Station and then when the whatever ship blew up that was going to pick them up had to stay up there like an extra year before they get picked up and like how they slowly went crazy. No, that's interesting. Is it fiction it's, or nonfiction? It is nonfiction. No, wait, it is. Yeah, sorry, nonfiction. So yeah, this is based off of true events. So they basically like went slowly more and more detached from humanity. Wait, why, and, sorry, why were they, why they had to wait a year? Because the other ship Because uh, the, the ship that was going to pick them up blew up and they don't just have like oh, a bunch of spare spaceships around to pick okay. people up from the internet station. But they, they sat up there and they watched Tank Girl and oh they felt like incredibly, like just in the two hours of that film that they became completely detached from humanity based off of just watching that. I, mean, I kind of remember that experience when I saw it in the theater. Uh, oh, you saw it in the theater? I oh did. my! I was like Eleven years old. I remember yeah. my mom brought me. It was like a hard R, and she was like, "There's no violence." It's not like, it's, oh, she was like, "Oh, is it R because of violence or sex?" They're like, eh, "I think violence," and then it was like <laughs> constant sex. Is it of uh, her having sex with a kangaroo man or Malcolm McDowell sucking all the water out of somebody? Hey, what's that a reference to? The, the tank girl. Does he suck the water out of people? Yeah, he's got like a machine because water is a resource because it's like oh, a right, Mad yeah. Max parody. So they stick it in the guy and it sucks all the water out of him. I just remember being like, oh boy, I shouldn't be seeing this shit. Yeah, you should. I mean, also as an adult, if I watch it, I'd be like, I shouldn't be seeing this shit. <laughs> also true. The also emphasis true. would change, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, getting back to the story on our, our magical roaches. Uh, so Marcy is bothered by, you know, this this interaction all day. And she's, you know, worried about it. And, you know, at night she takes out some of the, the batting between the pipes. They can look into the room to stare at the the Shapilovs singing their songs and dancing their dances and doing all their their weird ethnic things that her as a uh, white bread Minnesotan good girl doesn't approve of. So she's like, oh, come to me, roaches, but let's just wait here a while. And then it's all the roaches in the building crawl up into a room. And then once night falls and the Shapilovs go to sleep, she sends them all in there to bite them and attack them. So they start screaming and yelling and jumping around because there's roaches everywhere. And then right before the landlord comes, she calls the roaches back into her apartment. The landlord comes in and is like, this was a lovely place before you guys came and messed it all up. Get out of here. You're seeing bugs. It's called the drinking you're doing. Get out of here, you you no good bums. Well, they describe... The story describes the roaches as like brown black dots on the shop of uh, skirts or whatever. Mm-hmm. I've seen some New York City cockroaches and I wish they could be described as brown <laughs> black dots. I mean, I had a palmetto bug in my apartment a couple months ago. <laughs> oh boy. That was the biggest fucking roach. And it flew. Yeah. That was like uh, the biggest jump scare of my life. Are like, they technically roaches? I mean, I don't know if they were. Or, fucking... I mean, it's just some other giant weird bug that South Carolina loves. It was kind of like. I tried to whack that thing off my wall and it was like, hold on, you have not seen my final form. And it fucking launches into the fucking air like a bird. Yeah, that's what you want, right? This nightmare beetle thing that's the size horrifying. of your fist running around. It was fucking horrifying. Yeah, it's, it's unpleasant. I won, though. Mm-hmm. Unless this is like the original ending of Alien, if you remember that. Uh, I don't. The original, the original ending of oh, Alien. Oh, when, when it calls. Yeah, it's voice. supposed to be like it kills her and then it uses Ripley's voice to call, which I think is actually kind of cool. Yeah, did they shoot that, or they just that was in the script? I think it was in the script, but I think a lot of people thought it was stupid and lame. But I think it's kind of mm. frightening. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, it's certainly weird, but I think at that point, like, you don't you want that alien mimicking a human being and having thought enough to have a conversation? Yeah, I mean, I kind of just imagine it looking like that dream sequence in Jurassic Park three. Yeah. That? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that movie was terrible. Yeah. But still, uh, not the worst Jurassic Park movie. 
Which is the worst Jurassic Park movie? Uh, I mean, Jurassic World Two, I yeah, guess, is probably the worst I didn't see one. The new ones, so. No, they and they get successively worse uh, as okay, they go gotcha. along. But yeah, so the Chapelaws have been kicked out. Looks like Marsh is one. She sits down to open a cupboard and get a big, nice glass of creme de menthe, which is uh, certainly a oldie timey beverage. Only to find the roaches are waiting for her because she didn't tell them, you know, where to go once they were done. So these roaches, they need to be carefully commanded. But now it turns out that she kind of hear the the hive mind of the roaches. And it turns out that the roaches love her. And she's looking at them and they're like, you know what, roaches? I love you too. You guys are pretty good. Uh, come to me. I love you. And from every corner of Manhattan, from the crumbling walls of Harlem to from the restaurants of 56th Street, from warehouses along the river, from sewers and from the orange peels moldering garbage cans, the loving roaches came forth and began to crawl towards their mistress. So that's going to be a real roachy shit show at the end. I, I like um, the description of the voice of the roaches. It says, delicate music issuing from a thousand tiny pipes. An ancient music box opened after centuries of silence. Yeah, that's good. So yeah, I guess the story is all about how what repulses us also becomes kind of our, our fascinated obsession and how much we want to exert control over it. Yeah, you may hate it at the beginning, and then you'll grow to love it. Why did you pick this story? Oh, this this kind of goes into the genre of, uh, I mean, uh, whimpering of whip dogs is of this, of like, small town person comes to big city, realizes true unnatural horrors therein. I do like stories that reveal New York to be a cesspool shithole. Like, fine, <laughs> I could read this all night. Children of the Kingdom? That's another one, I guess. Uh, Although, I guess they are so standard uh, New Yorkers at that point. They're not just bumpkins from out of town coming to live in there. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Although, he does return to New York and realize, God, what a shithole. What's the Audrey Hepburn movie? Uh, the Mickey Rooney one? Yeah, that's the one. Breakfast at Tiffany's? Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. Actually, Another perfect example of the terrors of New York City. Actually, I never saw that. Oh, well, I, uh, it's not great. No, I mean, I've seen, obviously, the Mickey Rooney parts, obviously. Uh-huh. Just, yeah. just so I can know I'm my, my film history. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, I mean, those are both two good stories. I would, I mean, I think uh, eventually, after we do the next episode, we're going to talk a little bit about, like, stories we just recommend people checking out. So Yeah, I mean, there are, this is a very good percentage of good stories in yeah. this. Not, not 100%. This made me want to read Thomas Dish, because I like the way this was written. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, this is good because it's also, like, kind of, I mean, I wouldn't say it's an overt comedy, but, like, there's humor to it, too. Yeah, it's a little bit snappy, a little, little bit punchy. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope you enjoyed our selections. Tune in next week for part three. It's kind of like the surreal. That's like what they're going for. The surreal, the the cosmic. Supposedly, but it's not really. Yeah, I mean, again, we're gonna have some quibbles with how they how yeah. they rate things. When we when we do our summary, I don't think we're going to go and say which section these things would actually be in. But yeah, but we'll uh, take which ones to check out or not. Till next time, adios. Mm-hmm.